Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take our Bibles and open them to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We have one more Sunday morning here in chapter, nine, chapter 9, then our summer Bible conference next week on 2 Timothy. And I want to invite all of you to be here. It begins on Friday evening. We'll have a supper and then a service. And then on Saturday night, another service. And then Sunday morning during Sunday school, you'll go through the third chapter of 2 Timothy. And then on Sunday morning during the service, we'll in chapter 4. There are four chapters in 2 Timothy. If you'll come Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you'll cover all four chapters. So please be here for that. And then after the, the conference, Lord willing, we're going to spend the rest of the summer in the Old Testament book of Joshua. So you be in prayer for that. Well, last Sunday morning, we looked at the passage immediately preceding the one I'm about to read. Remember, it was about a young man who had a demon, not just any demon. This was a particularly stubborn demon. The disciples, though they tried, were unable to help the young man. And so when Jesus came, of course, being all powerful, he cast out the demon. The other gospel writers tell us that it was because the littleness of the faith of the apostles that they were unable to cast out the demon. Well, the apostles might have suffered from littleness of faith, but they did not have such a problem as it related to their egos. And so let's read about how the Lord Jesus addressed the problem of pride here in Luke 9, beginning in verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. That is, everyone who observed Jesus cast a demon out of the young man were amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument started among them as to which one of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you all, this is the one who is great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. And when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. And they went on to another village." May the Lord add His blessing, the reading and hearing of His Word. Now several times during His earthly ministry, Jesus rebuked the disciples for their pride. And rarely did He do it only through His words. Most often He rebuked them with His own perfect example. And that's what I want us to see first of all this morning, Christ's perfect example of humility. In verse 43 and 44, we find the two hallmark characteristics 
of someone who's truly humble. Let's read it. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The first characteristic of a truly humble life is that it is a life that seeks to glorify God rather than self. And Jesus is the perfect example of one who wanted to glorify the Father. In fact, he says that he always and ever did the will of the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said to his disciples, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We see this throughout his ministry. We see it particularly the night of his arrest when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed the Father that if there'd be some other way, this cup would pass from him. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, but thine be done. A humble life is a life that seeks to glorify God rather than self. And then we see the second characteristic of a humble life, and that's this. A humble life gives up rights and privileges for the good of others. Jesus says, I'm about to go, and I'm going to be delivered to the hands of men. Now, what he's really saying is, they're going to kill me. Well, the disciples didn't want to hear that. The scripture says they didn't understand it, and so they just went on with their day and pretended they didn't hear it. Because remember, they had in their mind this picture of Jesus as a conquering hero, one who would march into Jerusalem with an army, overthrow the Romans, and set up an earthly kingdom. He would sit on his throne, and they would be his aides to camp. But of course, Jesus came to die, and he's telling them that directly, and they don't want to hear it yet. And Jesus came, he said, to seek and save the lost. He had to give up his own comfort, his own prerogatives of heaven for that to happen. And Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and following, and he instructs all believers to live that way, humbly, giving up our rights and privileges so that others may have rights and privileges and may live. Listen to what Paul says. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, held on too tightly. But he emptied himself. The Greek word is he poured himself out, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself. He left the glories of heaven so that he may take on a human body that he may die, the atoning sacrifice for sin. So in light of what Jesus constantly taught his disciples, both through word and deed, the argument that they were having among themselves seems pretty petty, doesn't it? Most arguments are pretty petty when it comes down to it, but this one is particularly petty. An argument, verse 46 says, started among them as to which one of them was the greatest. This may be the most incongruous statement in all the world. Here you have these humble fisherman and a tax collector and a religious zealot in the presence of the creator of the universe and their favorite topic of conversation among themselves is which one of them was the greatest. Now this was no one-time indiscretion. This seems to be a constant topic of conversation among the twelve. You read the four gospels, you'll find a number of instances where they're walking with Jesus and they're arguing among themselves which one is the greatest. And when he questions them on their conversation, they're always embarrassed because they know they shouldn't be doing it. 
but they continue to come back to this topic of conversation. In fact, two of them, brothers, James and John, bring their mother into the argument. Matthew 20, 21, and he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, to Jesus, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Wonder where she got an idea like that. They put her up to it, of course. No wonder the Lord said in Luke 9, how long shall I put up with you? Thankfully, as we saw last week, he is patient. And here's yet another example of that, his patience with the 12. He doesn't blow his top, doesn't fire all of them on the spot. Instead, he calmly uses this episode as another teaching moment. He finds a little boy in the crowd and he brings him in and stands in beside him and he teaches a precious lesson. Verse 47, but Jesus knowing what they were thinking in their heart. Now it's not just that he's heard it all before, though he had, he's God. And when the Bible says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. It just means that he left the glory that was his in heaven to take on human form. He continued to be omniscient. He knew what everyone was thinking. And so he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. In fact, the other gospel writers say, he who is the greatest servant is the greatest among you. Well, there's a couple of things to note here about Jesus' rebuke of the disciples. And make no mistake, this is a rebuke. The first thing you notice is that he did not criticize their desire for greatness. It is not wrong to have a desire to live a great life. I don't think any of you pray that your children would aim at mediocrity. You want your children to be great. The problem was, was with the apostles is that they had the wrong definition of greatness. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their desire for greatness. He redefines greatness in terms of service. He who is the greatest servant will be greatest among you. And particularly, he defines it in serving children. Now that seems very odd, especially if you lived 2,000 years ago, when children did not enjoy a very high view in the culture. In fact, that culture, which was dominated by Roman thinking and Roman law, gave all the rights and privileges in a family to the father. And the father was sort of a dictator in the family. And if he wanted one of the family members put to death, he could, including his wife and all of his children and his servants that, that lived in his house. So children didn't have an exalted status. And so by Jesus bringing a child and giving him value and, and worth was sort of a countercultural move. You say, well, things have changed a whole lot. Our society certainly values children. Well, is, is that why that we have over one million abortions performed in this country on an annual basis? No, we don't value children any more than, than they did, unfortunately. And this was a problem of the ancient world. It's a problem today. And, and so Jesus says, if you want to be great, serve children. Why do you think that is? I think the answer is obvious. It's because with children there is no obvious reciprocation allowed. Here's what I mean. Most people who serve us in our culture do so for mixed motives. Yes, maybe some people generally are altruistic and they want to better the culture, but most people who we say are in service do so for reciprocation. Give an example. 
You go to a nice restaurant on a Saturday evening and you order a nice meal. You expect your waiter or waitress to be courteous and prompt and attentive. And almost always they are. And when they're not, you take note of it. And do you know why they're almost always courteous and prompt and attentive? Because they like their tip, right? Like all of us do. That is, they are serving, but they are serving for reciprocation. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We all have to make a living. But when Jesus is talking about serving children, he's saying, I think this is the purest kind of service because children can't reciprocate. They don't have any money. They are often not even thankful. Have you noticed that? And then they have no political power. They can't even vote you into office. I think that's why Jesus, uh, through his brother James, in James 1.27, said, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans, children, and the widows, and keep yourself unstained by the world. Those two groups of people don't have any political power. Most of them don't have any money, and they don't have any way to reciprocate. Unless we think this is only in the world at large, it is not. Do you know the most difficult volunteer positions to fill in any church are children's ministry? Particularly nursery workers, particularly caring for small children. You can ask anyone on our staff, in fact you can go to any church in the area and ask them what are the most difficult places to fill and they will tell you it's the children's ministry. That's why we're so grateful for our volunteers here, over 200 of you volunteering for Vacation Bible School. But the truth is, it's a difficult thing even to fill all the spaces on any Sunday morning. Now you put that in juxtaposition against something that happened here back in 2004. I had been the associate pastor here for one year when our pastor announced his retirement and passed away six weeks later of a massive heart attack. And so the leaders of our church came to me and said, would you supervise the staff and will you also fill the pulpit? That is, they wanted me to invite guest speakers to make sure we had a preacher every Sunday morning. And I said, I'd be glad to do that. And I'll tell you, though it's very difficult to find children's workers on a Sunday morning, I had no difficulty finding volunteers to preach. I mean that very sincerely. I started getting calls from people I'd never heard of. One man gave me his resume, it was 10 pages long, and he wrote a letter explaining why he should be the one to preach every week. Every Baptist sect and denomination sent me letters and called me of why their pastor ought to be the next in line here. You don't have to work hard to find volunteers to serve in areas that are in the spotlight. And this is what Jesus means when he says, if you want to be great, serve children. Because though the culture, theirs and ours, doesn't value children, God does. He says that children are a blessing from the Lord. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, blessed is the man whose, arrow, whose quiver is full of them. And so if we're to be like Jesus, we have to value children, we have to, to serve children. And to do it in a different way than the world does. There are those in the world who, who serve children and they campaign against childhood hunger and poverty and all of these various illnesses and we're grateful for those people but you can do that without being a Christian. Jesus says you are to do this in his name. That is because he values children and because we want to make much of him. 
And folks, not to put too fine a point on this, but that is why we do vacation Bible school here. That's why we do the baby bottle campaign to support our crisis pregnancy center. It's about receiving and serving all people, including and especially children in Jesus' name. And if you are tempted to think it's not that important, I want you to know it is. There were 92 men that you all nominated to be deacons a few months ago. And we're down to uh, a smaller group of that who are proceeding on with the process of deacon ordination. And the next step in the process are a series of interviews with the pastor and the deacon officer and the candidate and his wife. And we're doing those on Tuesday evenings, four every Tuesday evenings until we finish. So you'll be in prayer for that. And the first thing we ask the deacon and his wife to do is to tell of their testimony of how they came to saving faith. And this past Tuesday night, I heard eight testimonies of conversion, and I heard eight testimonies of people who were introduced to Jesus as children in the church, either through Sunday school or vacation Bible school or children or youth camp. It's important to the Lord that we serve children. Now, this is a lesson that Jesus taught his disciples over and over, and it's one we must hear over and over because we, like the apostles, tend to have very short memories. I want to give you two examples of how the apostles manifested that they had short memories when it came to, mem to, to remembering these lessons. There's really three. The first is that they didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say, remember, that he was going to be delivered to the hands of men. But, but the next one is John, who is a perplexed disciple. Verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Now you'll note the plural pronoun us. John is not offended he doesn't say, this man is not a follower of you, Jesus. He says, I'm offended because he does not follow along with us. That he's not in the inner circle. He, he's out there and, and we haven't approved of him. Verse 50, but Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now you have to look closely, but here we have yet another example of pride in one of the disciples. Remember, Jesus has just redefined greatness. He said greatness is putting the needs of others ahead of your own. And so we, Jesus knows that we as people define greatness as finishing ahead of others, right? That, that's how we define greatness. You, you might win 100 games in the baseball season, but did you win the World Series? Did you finish first or second? That's how we define greatness. But Jesus defines greatness, remember, as serving the most people. The opposite of humility is often pettiness. That is, when we see what others are doing, even in the name of the Lord, and not rejoicing, and in fact, being jealous of it. And do you know who are the worst people in the world at this? Preachers. Next Sunday, I'm going to gather about 10,000 other preachers over in Dallas for the Southern Baptist Convention, and there's going to be some wonderful preaching. But do you know what we preachers tend to do after we hear that? We break up and go into restaurants and say, did you hear that second point? I wouldn't have said it like that. <laughs> I thought his illustration was off a few degrees, don't you? And we just have one another for lunch. I know you don't do that in your vocation, but preachers do. 
We are often petty and small and prideful. But hear this, humility, and this is not original with me, I've heard it all my life, but it's true. Humility is observing what other people do better than you and rejoicing in it. Now in the church that may mean someone who sings or teaches or preaches or gives testimony or uh, is good at service or has a gift of generosity. True humility is observing someone do what you do better than you and rejoicing in it. John was not there yet. He saw one casting out a demon. He was probably still stinging from the fact he tried to cast out that demon and wasn't able to. And he sees someone else doing that and he says, Lord, tell him to stop. He's not with us. And so he sees this ministry as competition rather than rejoicing in it. And he's rebuked by Jesus. There's one more example. And again, John's involved. And I hesitate to even give you this fifth point because of the pride I had this week when I came up with something that started with the letter P. (laughs) But it's too late now. It's already been printed. A pair of pyromaniacs. Verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem, but he's not hiding. He's he's set his face and he's going. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Now you remember that the Samaritans and the Jews had some problems. Culturally, racially, uh, they didn't get along. And that's why it was so shocking when Jesus talked to this Samaritan woman at the well and they had a theological conversation and she says, we know that you people worship in Jerusalem and we worship up on this mountain. Who's right? And Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. The Samaritans knew that and they wouldn't give him a place to rest for the night. And it made uh, the apostles James and John so, so mad, verse 54, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now Jesus has just taught them a lesson about humility. That true humility is serving others, and they wanted to serve these others by calling down fire from heaven to kill them. And of course, they thought, they thought that they were doing the Lord a favor. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. We can assume it was not the Holy Spirit, some other form of spirit that they were of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, there's a very important point here, and it's this. We're talking about pride today. And pride often manifests itself in what we perceive to be righteous indignation. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. Anger is not always a sin. We know that because Jesus got angry and Jesus never sinned. Remember, Jesus got angry when he had a bunch of thieves who had turned what he says was to be a house of prayer for all men into a den of thieves. The money changers in the temple and he chased them out. He was angry about what makes God angry. But most of the things that make us angry are personal slights and inconveniences. And that's exactly what had happened. James and John were inconvenienced by having to go to another village to find a place to sleep. And they were angry and they masked their personal offense with righteous indignation. They said, we're mad because you've offended Jesus. 
And they came to Jesus thinking he was going to say, yeah, thanks for defending my honor. By the way, Jesus doesn't need them to defend him, right? If he wanted to call down fire from heaven, could he have done it? Of course. He, he didn't need And by the way, they didn't have power to do that anyway. Nowhere in the scripture does it say they had power to do that. But, but they felt like they were in the right. Jesus, it says, turned. And the image I get is he turned quickly. And he called eye contact with them so that they would never forget what he was about to tell them. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. But friends, there's a little deeper problem going on here than personal offense. There's a racial and a cultural bias here. See, it wasn't just that the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. It was vice versa. In fact, there was tension with them constantly, and that racial animosity was always bubbling just below the surface. It emerged from time to time in men like Peter and, and others, and the Lord had to constantly be doing His work of sanctification to separate them from the sin of racism and prejudice. And, and they were all too happy to kill these Samaritans. True Christianity is manifest through humility. That is what Christ defines serving all people. Even children. Even widows who can't reciprocate. And may I add, also even your enemies. Now remember what Jesus has already taught these folks in the past, recorded in the Gospels. You have heard it said of old time, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Remember, Jesus is on his way to be delivered into the hands of his enemies, the Pharisees, to die. He didn't call down fire from heaven on the Pharisees. He said, Father, forgive them. And so here's a great lesson that, that he taught even before the cross. True Christianity, true greatness includes serving all people, people of all ages people from all rungs of the social ladder, people from all ethnicities, people from all races. And friends, we have a great opportunity to do that very thing this week. Keller is a town that is not only young and full of young families and children, it is becoming increasingly more racially diverse. We see this in our preschool program here throughout the week. We see it in our after-school music programs. We, we see people from all over the world have moved to Keller, Texas. And the question is, are we going to receive them? Are we going to receive these children? Jesus says, blessed are those. When you receive this little one, you have received me. True greatness is serving the most people including and especially those who we perceive can't reciprocate that blessing. That's what we're called to do. That, friends, is what we must do. And that, friends, is what Vacation Bible School is all about this week. Now, I said we're going to have a special prayer time, and we're about to do that. There are literally hundreds of you who have volunteered to work this week, and you're going to need wisdom, you're going to need strength. So if you are a volunteer for Vacation Bible School, a teacher, director, kitchen worker, volunteer in any way, or if you're a student, you're enrolled in Bible school, would you stand at this time so that we can pray for you?
Just remain standing, if you will. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for these hundreds of people who are standing. Thank you, Father, that uh, they take seriously your mandate to serve all people, including children, people of all races and ethnicities. Father, they also uh, take seriously your definition of greatness, which is laying aside personal privilege and comfort to help others, to see what other people do for your kingdom and rejoice in it. And Lord, we do rejoice at what you will do and are doing in the lives of these children. Father, we pray for strength, we pray for patience, we pray for wisdom, Lord. Many of these children come from families that have no Christian background at all. We pray you'd be pleased to save many of them. And then, Father, we pray that all of them would take that gospel message back into their homes where they would have tremendous impact for the kingdom of God. So, Father, we do this not for our own glory, not for our own um, sense of altruism or... Um, but only for the fact that we do it in the name of Jesus, for His glory and for His sake. And we pray it in His name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.